Good evening, this is your host, Mr. Dark, bringing you a series of some of the most terrifying, strange, and true short horror stories of crimes, murders, abductions, and experiences. You're listening to the Dark Side Diaries podcast. The town that got away with murder. Skidmore, Missouri is a small farming community approximately 80 miles northwest of Kansas City, with a population only around 440 residents and mostly just small family-run businesses. It's strange to think this town had a dark past. Ken Rex McElroy was born June 1, 1934. He was the 15th of 16 children born to a poor migrant tenant farming couple. By the age of 15, McElroy dropped out of school and established the reputation of being a small-time thief and womanizer. For over two decades, McElroy was suspected of stealing many things, including grain, gasoline, alcohol, antiques, and livestock. He was able to avoid conviction when charges were brought against him a total of 21 times. Witnesses would refuse to testify because of alleged intimidation by McElroy which would include him following his targets or parking outside their homes and watching them. McElroy was never a popular man in Skidmore. Being 270 pounds, over 6 feet tall, and menacing looking, McElroy held the entire town of Skidmore under his thumb, which is how he got the nickname Town Bully. Over the years, McElroy being a volatile alcoholic was married multiple times. During his marriages, he had many affairs, which is how he fathered a total of 10 children with many different women, and many of them being just teenagers and underage. If any of his wives during their marriage raised an issue with his cheating, he would beat and torture them as a reminder that they were not to bring them up. McElroy met his last wife, Trina McLeod, in 1971, when she was just 12 years old and in 8th grade. He would follow the school bus Trina would ride with his pickup truck. McElroy would catch up to the bus, honk his horn, and drive up to the window where the bus driver could look at him. The bus driver in fear would pull the bus over and McElroy would demand Trina get off the bus and get in his pickup truck. It was known he raped McLeod repeatedly. Two years after they met, at the age of 14, Trina would be pregnant with their first child. McElroy made her move into his home, which is still shared with his current wife Alice. McElroy was a master of escaping punishment. 16 days after Trina gave birth, both Trina and Alice fled to Trina's parents' home. McElroy would find them, beat them both severely, and bring them back to his house. According to court records, McElroy returned to Trina's parents' home when they were away, shot the family dog, and burned the house down. With Trina's young age, McElroy was facing molestation charges. Knowing Trina's testimony against him was very damning, he discovered that if he were to marry her, she would be exempt from testifying. Threatening her parents with burning their new home to the ground, they gave McElroy permission to marry Trina. Trina revealed the arson and abuse to a local doctor who in turn called the Social Welfare Agency. With Trina's story, McElroy was indicated in June 1973 for arson, assault, and statutory rape. McElroy was arrested, booked, arraigned, and released on $2,500 bail. Trina and her baby were placed in foster care at a home. McElroy, not happy with this, would sit outside the foster home for hours at a time staring at it. 
Knowing where the foster family's biological daughter went to school and what bus route she rode, he threatened the family he would trade, girl for girl, to get his child back, which would bring additional charges filed against him. On July 27, 1976, McElroy would get into an altercation with Skidmore farmer Romaine Henry. Henry was alerted by a farmhand that someone was shooting a firearm on his property. Henry, in his concern, investigated by driving down a gravel road that bordered his property. It would be McElroy that Henry would recognize with a shotgun in his hands. McElroy approached the truck, raised the barrel of the gun, and pointed it at the cab of the approaching truck. Henry stopped with the passenger side window rolled down. McElroy, being upset, yelled to Henry of being a dirty SOB, and that Henry had been at his place in a white Pontiac. When Henry responded that he didn't own a car like that, McElroy yelled, Lion SOB, and pulled the trigger. McElroy shot him twice in the stomach. Henry was fortunate to survive the horrible injuries, and unlike McElroy's other victims, he would testify in court against him. He was stalked and threatened mercilessly. Henry would still testify against him. But at the trial, two raccoon hunters testified they were with McElroy the day of the shooting away from Henry's property, which would see McElroy walk a free man. In April of 1980, McElroy's youngest daughter would try to steal a piece of candy from the local grocery store owned by Ernest and Lois Bowenkamp. The clerk saw what happened and warned the girl that she better return the candy or pay for it. McElroy and Trina were angry over the incident. The Bowenkamps fed up with the situation told the McElroys to leave the store and never come back. But the Bowen camps would become the new targets of McElroy's intimidation. He would sit outside of their home for hours and occasionally fire his shotgun into the air. But things would escalate further. Ernest was standing outside on the loading dock of his store and was waiting for the AC repairman. McElroy drove to the store, found Ernest, pulled out a shotgun, and shot him in the neck. Ernest survived miraculously, and McElroy was arrested and charged with attempted murder. But this would be the incident that pushed the town of Skidmore over the edge. McElroy was released on bail awaiting appeal, which shocked the entire community. After being released at a post-trial hearing, McElroy went to the D&G Tavern, a local bar, carrying an M1 rifle with a bayonet attached, and making graphic threats about what he would do to Ernest. This led to the town gathering to decide what they could legally do to prevent McElroy from harming anyone else. The sheriff told them to form a neighborhood watch. On July 10, 1980, a group of residents and the sheriff gathered once again at the American Legion Hall, which was located across the street from the DNG Tavern. The plan was to discuss how they were going to protect themselves from McElroy for the next two weeks until the hearing. The sheriff told them not to get into a direct confrontation with McElroy, but instead seriously consider forming a neighborhood watch program. The sheriff then drove out of the town in his police cruiser. While in the meeting, word went around that McElroy and Trina were across the street at DNG Tavern, and afterward, around 40 of the town residents made their way there. Armed with his beloved rifle and a six-pack of beer he just purchased from the tavern, McElroy got in his vehicle with Trina. Shots rang out, and McElroy sat, dying in his truck with Trina screaming. McElroy was hit twice, once by a centerfire rifle, and once by a .22 rimfire rifle. Blood covered the inside of the vehicle. There were 46 potential witnesses to the shooting, and every single one refused to confess who had fired the fatal shots. No one would call for an ambulance either. The investigation would uncover that McElroy had been shot by two separate people, one in position behind the truck and another half block in front of the truck. 
Regardless of the amount of witnesses to the murder which took place in broad daylight, nobody was ever charged and the jury concluded that McElroy was killed by a person or persons unknown. McElroy's attorney would later say, I know why they didn't talk. They were all glad he was dead. The town got away with murder. The town has kept silent ever since, feeling as though they owe nothing to a man who vandalized and terrorized them for decades. The Chicago Rippers. It was between May 1981 and December 1982 that Robin Gecht, Edward Spritzer, Andrew Cocorales, and his brother Thomas Cocorales, collectively known as the Ripper Crew or the Chicago Rippers, would terrorize the Chicagoland area with their brutal murders and suspected disappearances of 18 women. The Ripper Crew was a satanic cult consisting of necrophiliac, cannibalistic serial killers and rapists who had interest in younger women. Not a lot is known about the crew prior to the killings other than their ringleader, Gecht, who was employed at the contracting company that was owned by fellow Chicagoland serial killer and rapist John Wayne Gacy. Gecht as a teenager had also been accused of molesting his own sister and had a long-time interest in Satanism. Authorities said the Ripper crew stalked the streets of Chicago and the west and northwest suburbs in a reddish-orange van in which they would search for lone women to abduct. These abductions would begin on May 23, 1981. The crew would find their first known victim, a prostitute and mother of two children named Linda Sutton. Sutton was walking home when she was abducted and thrown into the van. It would be almost 10 days on June 1, 1981, that detectives would receive a call about a foul smell from a lot behind the Rip Van Winkle Motel in Villa Park, Illinois. Detectives arrived expecting to find a dead animal, but instead found Linda Sutton's decomposing body. Coroner Pete Sykeman performed an autopsy. He could not get fingerprints from the body and had to search dental records to ID the victim. The most disturbing facts Sykeman found were that Linda had been gang raped, sodomized, handcuffed, and had her left breast cut off, all while she was alive. Left on Sutton's decomposing body was a pair of handcuffs still attached to her now bare-boned wrist, and a gag was found still crammed in her mouth. Still wearing a sweater, her underwear was pulled down around her legs. Detectives found a small amount of cash stuffed in her socks, which ruled out that she was targeted for a robbery. On May 15, 1982, the crew abducted 21-year-old Lorraine Borowski, just as she was opening the realtor's office where she worked. Fellow co-workers showing up for work that morning found the doors still locked, with Borowski's shoes and handbag contents strewn everywhere outside the door. Her body wouldn't be found for five months on October 10, 1982. Hunters found her body dumped in the thicket with her clothes scattered nearby in Clarendon Hills Cemetery close to Westmont. The killers would not only keep Borowski alive for a while after abducting her, but they kept her corpse for some time before dumping it at the cemetery too. Her autopsy revealed she had been raped repeatedly, a wire was used to cut off her breast, she was beaten severely, something was inserted into the wound of her severed breast, and she was eventually killed with an axe. Even with the Ripper's crew's calling card of cutting off the left breast, police had no leads. 
Over the next few months, the crew would abduct and kill several more women in the Chicago area. It would be only days after killing Borowski that 30-year-old Shui Mack was abducted. Mack had only been living in the U.S. for three years, where she moved from Hong Kong to work at her family's restaurant in Streamwood, Illinois. She'd go missing on the night of May 29, 1982, when she left her family's restaurant after work. It wouldn't be until four months later on the last day of September 1982, where Mack's body would be discovered in a field in Barrington, Illinois. Her beaten body was badly decomposed. The only indications of how she was killed were nicks on bones that appeared to be knife marks, which showed her skull had been fractured. Her sister was only able to identify Mac by the clothes she was wearing. Two weeks after abducting Mac on June 13, 1982, the crew picked up Angel York in their van and handcuffed her. One of the men gave her a knife and told her to cut her own breast. York did so, and after the man took his knife back and cut her breast more. They then masturbated into the wound, and when he was finished, he duct taped it shut before throwing her out of the van, still alive. York's description of her attackers wouldn't produce any leads. Two months would go by, and on August 28, 1982, 18-year-old Sandra Delaware's body was discovered on the bank of the Chicago River. Her body was dumped under the Fullerton Avenue Bridge. Delaware had been stabbed, strangled, and her left breast was amputated. The autopsy showed her body had been found six hours after death. On September 8, 1982, 31-year-old Rose Davis was found in an alley with body injuries almost identical to those inflicted on Delaware. An autopsy showed Davis had been brutally stabbed repeatedly, raped, and strangled with a black sock. Her face was beaten so badly they had a hard time identifying her. Her stomach showed many small cuts and punctures. Her breast had been cut and mutilated, and a blood pool accumulated from her anal cavity. Numerous hatchet blows to her face and head ultimately killed her. On December 6, 1982, the gang committed their last crime. Their victim, Beverly Washington, was found near a railroad track on December 6, 1982. With a mutilated body, Washington was found barely alive. The crew, thinking she was dead, had dumped her body and someone came across her and called for help. She was found with an amputated left breast, a severely slashed right breast, and numerous stab wounds inflicted upon all over her body. Washington was able to give descriptions of her attackers in the van they had used to abduct her. The testimony of Angel and Beverly gave the police description of the van the Ripper crew drove. Chicago police located the van on North Central Avenue, where Edward Spritzer was driving it at the time. When they questioned him, he said the van belonged to his boss, Robin Gecht. The police would discover that in 1981, Gecht rented a room in a motel with adjoining rooms along with three friends. The hotel manager said they would have loud parties and appeared to be in a cult. Police then tracked down the other three men. When interrogated, Thomas Cocorales confessed that he and the others had taken women back to Gecht's place, which they called the satanic chapel that was in his attic. He said they would rape and torture the women, and they used knives and ice picks to mutilate the victims. He said the breast was usually removed with the wire, and they would masturbate into the breast, where they would each eat a part of the flesh as a sacrament. Cocorales said eating the flesh was like taking communion, and that Gex saved the breast in a box, where Cocorales once counted 15 inside. They would then dump the bodies in alleys, under bridges, and in forests located in the outskirts of the city. During the trial, not one of the other three accomplices to Gecht would take the stand against him, and they all recanted saying Gecht had anything to do with the horrific murders. But the jury still found him guilty on all charges, and he was sentenced to 120 years in prison. 
After a series of trials, Gecht, Spreitzer, and Thomas Kokoralis were sentenced to life in prison. Thomas's brother, Andrew Kokoralis, was executed by lethal injection on March 16, 1999. He was the last inmate to be executed in Illinois. Thomas Kokoralis was released from prison after only serving half of his sentence in 2017. He currently lives in Illinois. Gecht is the only one who wasn't convicted of murder. He was sentenced to 120 years for the rape and mutilation and will first be eligible for parole in 2042. Spritzer exhausted all of his appeals and will serve a life sentence without parole. We will never know the true body count of the Ripper crew because some of the victims' bodies haven't been found. This concludes our episode of the Dark Side Diaries. Please remember to follow, like, share, and subscribe for future episodes. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.